Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and if you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to my newsletter where you'll receive every new episode a week early. Head to theconsumervc.com and click subscribe. All content episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Hello and happy holidays. Just like we've done in years past during this special time of year, we're gonna be sharing recaps of our most popular episodes from this past year, 2022. An annual roundup, so to speak. It's gonna be during Hanukkah and Christmas, so every day from December 18th through December 26th. This is a highlight episode from my conversation with Steve Case, who's the co-founder of AOL.com, the founder of Revolution and Rise of the Rest. Rise of the Rest started as a bus tour for an emerging startup ecosystems and then became a seed fund. Steve recently wrote and published his latest book, The Rise of the Rest, which shared stories of entrepreneurs building companies in surprising places and are really building a new American dream for themselves. I really enjoyed reading it and appreciated Steve's optimism about the future of America. Without further ado, here's Steve. I hope you enjoy. Steve, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? Terrific. Great to be with you, Mike. I really appreciate you coming on the show. So I wanted to first kind of start with what made Washington, D.C. so special to you? I know AOL.com started in Washington, D.C. Revolution started in Washington, D.C. Why wasn't AOL ever originated or formed in you know Silicon Valley or Seattle? And why did you also choose Revolution for it to be in uh, D.C.? Well, a little bit by accident for me, but not really by accident in terms of AOL itself. In terms of for me, I moved to the Washington, D.C. area almost four decades ago to join a startup that was in Northern Virginia that failed. But two of the people I met there and I went off and started America Online in, in uh, 1985. So that's why I was in the D.C. area. In terms of uh, AOL specifically, part of the reason it was birthed here is the Internet was birthed here. The initial Internet investment from the government over half a century ago in what was uh, kind of the, the DARPA net for a while and then ARPA net uh, really was the foundational technology that created the internet and also some of the policies that needed to change to commercialize the internet, to give it access to people and businesses instead of just the government and educational institutions kind of also needed to needed to change. So even though I kind of moved here a little bit by accident and it was a little harder to start and scale a company here, given that was, there wasn't much venture capital and there wasn't much of a startup culture back then, you know, it, it has developed nicely since. And as an example, one of these, what we call rise of the rest cities. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. So, I mean, it was by accident, but at the same time, it actually became vital or, or you know, a great uh, city to start, you know, an, an internet company since the internet was birthed in D.C. So that's um, that's amazing. Yeah, and I would say just to add to that, that, that part of the reason to answer your question about revolution and, and, and even more recently, I actually think the mega trends in the venture capital world in the next decade are around place and around policy. That place, you know, I think will matter more. And I think you will start seeing an acceleration of the company starting and scaling outside of the traditional tech hub, Silicon Valley, New York City, Boston, et cetera, as you all well know. And part of the reason I wrote the book on Rise of Rest is we've, we've now invested in 100 cities. And it's remarkable how many cities are really rising as startup cities. So I think venture investors will need to expand their periphery to include different places around the country. And the other around policy, some of the biggest industries that are up for grabs in, in this next chapter, things like healthcare, food and agriculture, financial services, 
even a lot of things happening in, in, in sports with sports tech, have a government, you know, kind of aspect to them, a regulation aspect to them, which is frustrating at one level, but it's just the reality of, of things like, uh, you know, healthcare, given how fundamental it is in terms of people's lives. So I think understanding policy and seeing it as uh, both a problem to get through, but also an opportunity once you do get through, I think is going to be increasingly important. Some of the legislation that passed recently in the last couple of months around Chips and Science Act and some of the Inflation Reduction Act, which funding a lot of investment in climate tech, funding a lot of focus on regional hubs, I think is a reminder that policy is going to matter more. So for those out there listening to your, your show, I would think, you know, I'm sure some are already focused on place. In fact, many may be in different parts of the country. But if you're not, I'd encourage you to focus more on places outside of the coastal tech hubs. And I'd also encourage you to think more about the role of policy because I think that's going to unlock some of the biggest investment gains in the next, you know, 10 or 20 years for the companies that really can figure that out. What I also loved about the book was how you're kind of pooling all these people that are involved in the community from different backgrounds, whether it's entrepreneurs, whether it's government officials, you know, mayors, maybe governors, and, and these people from many different parts that of that obviously want a really strong community and of, you know, entrepreneurship. Do you think on the job creation side, since this is such a main point for, you know, politicians, I think you touched on this a little bit in the book, how when you think about job creation, it's maybe luring some of the big companies to come from out of state to your city or, you know, to your state. Do you think that there's a bit of a shift in thinking where it's, okay, actually, let's actually homegrown, like homegrown these companies ourselves rather than trying to lure a company to come out of state? Yeah, no, I think uh, economic development for most states a decade ago was overwhelmingly focused on big companies. How do you get a big company to move a headquarters? How do you get a big company to open a factory or customer service center or data center or something like that? And that's always going to be part of it. But it has been encouraging to see in in the last few years in particular how many uh, governors and mayors also recognize that the better strategy is to create a strong, thriving startup community so more new companies can get started. And of course, some of those will fail. That's the nature of startup. But some of those could very well be the big companies of tomorrow, the Fortune 500 companies of tomorrow. So that's been a, a good pivot to see where there is much more a focus on what can be done in different cities to create that, that thriving startup you know, community. What makes a city in your mind like an up-and-coming, thriving startup city? Like, because I know you also get pitched, you know, kind of pitched a lot about rise of the rest, come to our city and come here. What's kind of your decision making process and what are maybe some of the attributes that you have to see in order for um, for a city to be interesting to you? Well, we've worked hard over the last decade in trying to understand kind of what makes for a thriving startup city. We've published a number of reports, even I have a whole chapter in the in the Rise of the Rest book on, on this. And so there's a number of different factors. In terms of picking cities that we want to visit by our bus, it's got to have some momentum and something happening that is encouraging, uh, but at the same time has not yet arrived. So there's some cities outside of San Francisco, outside of New York, outside of Boston that we haven't come to with our bus, cities like a Seattle or an Austin. And the reason for that is they're doing fine. Thank you very much. They, they, they our, our being there is not necessarily going to be catalytic. Now, sometimes we get pushed back. Just last week, I was doing a podcast with folks in Austin. And they were like, why, why will you come to Austin? Well, the answer was because Austin's doing doing pretty well. And Already we're trying there. to identify sort of the, the next Austin, the next you know, Seattle's. Uh, so it, it's got to have some uh, some momentum, but still not really uh, have been, you know, you know kind of gotten that kind of 
tipping point, if you will, that results in you know more people focusing on it in terms of backing companies, both people in the in that particular city backing the companies as well as people from other parts of the country understanding their their uh, their great companies there. One of the things that's great to see, and we've now seen this in more and more. Uh, cities, and I write about a number of them in, in the book, are these these tentpole companies that their success begets more success for others. A recent example of that is in Indianapolis, part of the reason it's grown uh, well in the last decade, particularly around enterprise software, is the success of Exact Target uh, that was acquired by Salesforce. Salesforce now has 2,000 employees in Indianapolis. It's the second largest Salesforce city outside of San Francisco itself. And a number of the people, including Scott Dorsey, the founder of, of uh, Exact Target's gone on to start a, a firm, and, and and other people that were in the early days of Exact Target have started new companies or backed new companies, and that's where you see this this sort of a network effect kicking in, and that's happening now in more and more you know, cities. So that's part of the reason why there's an acceleration in terms of this this rise of the rest. I really enjoyed the book and really hearing um, all the stories. One conversation that really comes to mind was when you were in Philadelphia and you and you were talking with Mayor Nutter about how he was saying. Um, I forget the line, but pretty much we need to do, there needs to be more of this in Philadelphia. How do you think, because it's such a big deal when the kind of rise arrest comes into your city, you, you're you bringing all these different community, people that are, you know, part of the community together. You have this incredible pitch competition. How, once you leave, how do you think about that the kind of momentum that you have? How can a city then kind of keep up that momentum in order to, to then become a stronger community per se? Well, you're kind of say that. You know, we have got a lot of positive feedback from from cities where we have visited. The way we do this is not really about showing up. You know, our, our team spends six plus months, you know, before we show up, working with people in the community, kind of advancing what we're going to, you know, visit, trying to understand some of the dynamics, both some some good things that are working that we need to really spotlight, as well as some challenges the city might have that we need to help, you know, kind of catalyze more more attention on. Then when we leave, you know, we're spending the next several years, you know, still quite connected. We've even hosted rise and rest summits for our for so far we've done one with over a hundred you know, venture investors from different parts of the country, actually two of those, trying to bring them pe- those people together and continue to, to work together, learn from each other, obviously share deal flow, things like that. So it's not about just showing up. It's the work that happens before we're there and the work that happens after we're there. And the cities generally are trying to take advantage of the fact that we are showing up and we're bringing some media attention, bringing investors from other parts of the country uh, to, to their, their city as, as a way to create kind of a tipping point for their city and, and build on it. I, I was just in Phoenix uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago. We were there with our bus tour five or six years ago. At the time, it was just starting to emerge as, as a startup city. It was just trying to get more you know, attention from people you know, locally. And now things have scaled quite, quite nicely. They capitalized on the fact that we were there uh, and, and used that as a way to build momentum uh, long after we left. And so that's what we love to see where, where our, our being there can be helpful and in some cases even even catalytic, as, as the, you mentioned Mayor Nutter was saying. But the real work then continues after we leave to build on that and, and create more excitement, get some more capital locally, backing entrepreneurs, try to you know, attract more attention from coastal you know, investors to see what's happening in these particular you know, cities. So it's a classic case of momentum begets momentum and how do you create that network effect how do you create that increasing returns how do you create that tipping point uh in in more cities what's maybe something that's maybe not obvious about creating that that tipping point in cities that you know for creating a startup community 
Well, I'd say so there's some things that are that are more obvious, like the idea I mentioned of like tentpole companies. Something that's less obvious is how critical collaboration is, and and, and in many of these cities, uh, it's it tends to be kind of fragmented, sort of siloed. That there are different people doing different things, but they're not doing it in a very you know, connected way, not a very collaborative way. And the other part is they generally are not doing that good a job of telling their story to other people, so people don't really know what's happening in, in a particular city. And that's been the biggest surprise as people have read the the Rise of the Rest book is how many cities are really thriving, and many of them, for most of the readers, they had no clue that things were happening. Happening there, including some people, by the way, who actually grew up in these cities or went to school in these cities, but left, you know, 10 or 20 years ago and haven't really been paying attention. And uh, that's been some of the, the you know, the, the more interesting feedback is how many people have said, I, I actually grew up in, say, Chattanooga, and I didn't really know what was happening there. And after you know, reading the book, I now realize there's more, more happening there. So I, as a, as a VC, I'm going to pay more attention to that. Or in some cases, people have actually decided to move back to some of these cities. And, and we saw an acceleration of that during the pandemic. I've had on investors on the show that have said it's okay to found a company. Like they're totally fine um, and it could work to found a company in a secondary or tertiary market. But when it comes to scale, you need to plan to move to some of the value of these places that have, you know, incredible talent. I understand that Rise of the Rest Fund, you're investing at seed. And so when these companies are pretty early, when you are advising some of these companies and thinking about companies, companies at a scale, is that kind of the path still? Or how do you think about this question when it comes to scale? No, I don't think it's the path. It, it may be the path for some, but I, I don't think it's it's the path for, for most. And, you know, it's quite different than maybe 10 or 15 years ago where, you know, the, it was almost the, the only path. The reason it's changing is it goes back to this possibility of remote work. It, it is some of the people you might need to scale that company when you're going from 50 people to 500 people to 5,000 people that have really experienced building a company, hyper-growing uh, a, a, a company, blitz-scaling a company. Now you can tap into without requiring them to move to your city. And so this uh, opening up of remote work uh, you know, kind of comes in lots of different ways. But one of them, and, and we're seeing this in a number of the, uh, these Rise of the Rest cities already, are they're able to tap into some of the talent they need to, to scale. The other dynamic that's kicking in is many companies, not all companies, but many companies, do have a strategy to be more regionally distributed. It's not necessarily all remote, but but have some some pockets of, of activity. So maybe instead of being in one city, they're in you know two or three or, or four cities, and have sort of centers of gravity in, in different uh, different cities. So it certainly depends on what you're building, and, and different companies will have different dynamics. But we're seeing more companies able to scale in these rise the rest cities, not feeling like they need to need to move and being able to tap into much more of a, a global talent pool uh, that really does enable them to uh, stay where they are, scale where they are, while bringing in some of the, the blitzscaling expertise they need at, at, at when they get to that kind of inflection point. What I maybe most appreciated about your book, to be honest, was your optimism for America, since it seems like in this day and age, there's a lot of pessimism going around. How do you think about America's position right now when it comes to the ability to innovate on the world stage, um, maybe compared to the rest of the world, and just the overall kind of strength in, in America's position when it comes to entrepreneurship? Well, I'd say on the positive side, America remains the most innovative entrepreneurial nation in the world. We still have a pioneering spirit that we 
are unleashing now all across the, the country in terms of what's happening with these with these rising cities, which I think is is, is positive. And I think it would certainly within our grasp to continue to be the you know the leader of, of, of the pack. You know, that said, we you know have to look at the data and over the last you know twenty five years you know, if you look at global venture capital, uh, at one point, the U.S. had over 90% of global venture capital. And now it's less than 50%. So clearly, we're seeing the globalization of entrepreneurs. We're seeing countries like China making significant investments in technology, AI, robotics, many other other areas. Uh, and so it's kind of game on. And and meanwhile, we've gotten, unfortunately, more, more uh, difficult for, you know, immigrants who want to move into this country and start companies here to come here or stay here. And so one of the great things about this country over the past couple hundred years is we've been this magnet for people and ideas who want to be builders. And, and uh, we need to make sure we continue to maintain that, that new magnet position. So I am, as you said, optimistic. Anybody reading this book and learning about the dozens of entrepreneurs building amazing companies in dozens of cities, reimagining some big industries, industries creating lots of jobs in, in, those, in those communities that, that have felt left out and left behind. It is an optimistic story. And I, I do believe America can and should continue to lead. But at the same time, we need to be thoughtful and careful around immigration policy. We need to be thoughtful around some of the you know, kind of global competitive you know, dynamics and, and not just be complacent. Uh, and so I'm overall very positive, and as you, as you, you know, note from reading the book. Uh, but at the same time, I'm eyes wide open of some of the challenges that we face as a nation, and, and hopefully we'll address them. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Steve. What kind of needs to come maybe next when it comes to developing more communities? Well, I'd say that I'd say in, in general, in terms of this next phase of rise, the rest, next phase of these these rising cities, nothing beats success, and you know, success begets success. And so, as we start seeing more of these companies that really do break out and really do surprise you know people, a company like Mailchimp selling for twelve billion dollars in Atlanta, or a company like. Uh, Epic, which is the leader in you know electronic medical records, now having over ten thousand employees you know, outside of Madison, uh, Wisconsin. I could give you many other examples, obviously that that are in the book. When people see that happening, then they suddenly believe it's possible. It's, it's interesting if you look at history that people thought it was not possible to run a four minute mile. Suddenly, one person did, and a bunch of other people followed quickly after because they knew it could be done. It seemed like it was not possible to to climb Mount Everest. Once one person did. Suddenly, a bunch of other people did. And you see that same dynamic in these communities. When you see the growth of a significant you know, company that really does establish that city, uh, it, it leads other people to believe that they, too, have a shot, whether they be entrepreneurs or investors. And as I said before, some of the people that were part of those successful companies then want to go off and either start new companies or back new companies. And, and that really creates a, an acceleration in these rising cities. And thankfully, we're seeing that in more and more cities uh, as we've traveled around over the last decade. What would you say to a Silicon Valley investor that maybe only invests in Bay Area startups or you know New York or maybe someone in, in, in New York only invests in New York startups that said, okay, like, this is great. These examples that you've said in the book are you know incredible stories and different, but why should I go through the effort and going across all the different kind of areas in the US to kind of find these diamonds in the roughs where there's so much innovation that's kind of coming out of my of where I live and, and I can just build community in here and it's a lot more kind of efficient with my time. Well, it's obviously been the, the traditional argument, and some will continue to run that play. I think what I would say in response is 
a lot of really great entrepreneurs building some what could be very valuable companies in different parts of the country. And it seems if you have a narrow aperture, you're only assuming that people, you know, that you can building companies where you can drive to them are going to be in your portfolio of investments. You likely are going to miss out on some of the you know, great opportunities in this next chapter. So just opening your mind, opening your eyes, the possibility that there is a dispersion of talent, that some of the people that historically might have moved to Silicon Valley are staying where they are. Some of the people who previously did move to Silicon Valley might be moving back to some of these cities and bringing their own expertise and networks with them. I think that's going to advantage more and more of these rising cities. Some of the, you know, certainly Stanford, Berkeley, or Caltech are great universities, but some of the great research universities in this country are in places like Ann Arbor with Michigan or Columbus. Columbus with Ohio State or Pittsburgh with Carnegie Mellon or Phoenix with Arizona State or Atlanta with Georgia Tech. These are Madison, Wisconsin. These are great universities. And now increasingly more of the people graduating from those places are staying where they are and building where they are. And so that's where I think the next wave of companies would be. If you look at the American history, cities rise and fall. And and, uh, even the early days of the internet, when companies like mine, America Online, were starting in in the, in the Northern Virginia area. Uh, at the time, a lot of the companies that were building that first wave of the internet were in different parts of the, you know, the country. Hayes, the modem company, was in Atlanta. Sprint, the communications company, was in Kansas City. IBM's PC operations were in Boca Raton, Florida. Dell was in Austin. Gateway was in South Dakota. Microsoft actually started in Albuquerque before moving to Seattle. And so we've seen a history of innovation being more dispersed. I think what's happened in the last 20 years has been unique, and it really was when Silicon Valley kind of became so prominent, indeed so dominant, I don't think that's going to be the case in the next you know, 20 years. So you likely will miss out on some great investment opportunities if you're not willing to look beyond you know, the Bay Area zip codes. You had a really good, I think, line in the book how you know America kind of put all, all their eggs in one basket when it comes to innovation in Detroit with cars and automobiles. And it was kind of this one location for, for innovation and lasted for a number of years, but then it was obviously very, very challenging and, and things changed. So not to say that that will happen necessarily with Silicon Valley, but there is kind of some parallels when it comes to maybe one location being concentrated on doing one thing well, which Silicon Valley is with technology. Yeah, and I also would say, and you know, it could from and the venture investors listening know it that there, although there are many, many, many advantages to Silicon Valley, and most of those advantages will be sustained. There are also challenges in terms of that area, in terms of you know hiring people, keeping people. The retention rates are pretty low. Cost of living, cost of operating, is, you know, pretty high. So there, are, there are some structural things that are, and even some on the policy side, the state levels, there's some issues that are that are you know, becoming more problematic for some some people. So as I said before, I, I'm bullish on Silicon Valley. I think it will for sure be the, continue to be the leader of the pack. Uh, but putting all your eggs in that basket, I think will likely, like many investment strategies, diversification uh, is helpful, and diversifying beyond Silicon Valley likely will be. Uh, helpful, if not essential, for most venture capitalists in this next 10 or 20 years. I know on the investor side, because you be just across your portfolio and across all the stories that you shared in Rise of the Rest, you're a generalist, it seems, you know, you invest in, in a different number of different categories. What's part of your maybe due diligence process and how you evaluate companies? And is it a bit thematic driven? Is it not? would love to kind of hear a little bit more about your diligence process. Well, because uh, we have these three strategies and three 
teams, Revolution Growth, Revolution Ventures, and the Rise of a Seed Fund, they're all each a little bit different. In the later stage you know, fund, particularly Revolution Growth, we actually do have a number of sectors that we're focused on that we're you know, kind of more deeply involved focused. Sports tech, for example, because of our investments in DraftKings and Sport Radar. Ted Leonsis is a partner uh, with Revolution Growth, and he owns a sports team, many of the sports teams in the Washington, D.C. area. So sports tech is an obvious area. We've done a number of things in prop tech, and because that's an area that we think is pretty interesting. We've done some things in health tech, done some things in logistics. So it tends to be more sector specific where we have built significant kind of uh, you know, domain expertise, significant networks in those particular sectors. It's really just with Rise the Rest because it's a more place-based strategy and more of a partner Koretsu strategy where we're co-investing with regional venture firms. That's where we're more sector agnostic. What's that been like co-investing with different you know venture firms regionally? Because um, it seems like as well you have, since you have all these pockets you know, regionally, you can also make introductions as well to these regional investors on a wider scale. Yeah, what we're trying to do, in essence, it goes back to our discussion of Silicon Valley. One of the great things about Silicon Valley is the network density in Silicon Valley, the density of builders, the density of investors. What we're trying to build with the Rise of the Rest network is a similar network and build out the density of that network. Even though it's geographically dispersed, how do you build a, a more interconnected network of investors, of entrepreneurs, of community builders, of mayors, you know, of university presidents? So that's really been the, the focus. Of, of rise the rest. How do you able to? How do you build things that together can have a lot more impact? In terms of the specific question, because we have invested now with co-invested with hundreds of regional venture firms, and generally they are specializing in particular cities or at least particular regions. They can bring the best of what they know in terms of what's happening in their particular city, building on some of the domain expertise in that particular city, and we can connect them to others in our network, particularly as they as they scale up. So it's a it's sort of a win win in that respect. Cool. That's incredible. That's that's awesome. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Great being with you. And thanks for doing this. I understand you've now had over 250 episodes. So that's amazing. Thank you. That's so kind, Steve. Thank you. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this highlight episode. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.